Hello and welcome to another episode of Adventures in.net. I'm Sean Clebo, your host, and with me today we have our best co-host, Mark Miller. I made it. I made it to the top. I'm the winner. <laughs> well, I can they're all they're all in the buying, but just this week you're the best. That's right. Well, I'm the best co-host, everybody. <laughs> uh let's uh introduce our guest today. Let's welcome Rocky Laka. Welcome, Rocky. Hey, glad to be here. Good to hey. see y'all. So it sounds like you and Mark know each other? We do. We've known each other for many, many years, both being uh, speakers and a variety of other places that we've crossed paths over the years in the .NET or Microsoft space. Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) uh, Sean says that to everybody who knows me. Man, oh man, you know, and a a few years ago when when they still lived in, um, in the Northeast, we uh, had the uh, opportunity to go visit them at their home at the time. Um, that, that was before they all went and became globetrotting adventurers. And uh, I have enjoyed following all of that over time too. It's all, all the cool places to go live and yeah, very neat, very neat. Great. That's awesome. Um, why don't you start us off by giving us kind of an introduction to yourself, you know, how you got into development, how you get into .NET? Sure. Uh, yeah, I got into development, well, as you can see from some of the gray hair, I've been doing this for a while. Uh, so I started, and I have friends that will laugh, but I started on the deck backs uh, back in the late 1980s. Uh, and uh, I really liked the uh, VMS, Open VMS operating system. Uh, but you, know, you get into the 90s and uh, you know the PC... Uh, was starting to become a, a thing. And uh, uh, so I was trying to figure out, well, if I'm going to you know, use PCs, you know, if I'm being forced to at the time, because back then, you know, it was DOS and there wasn't virtual memory or any of the modern computing assets that we think of today um, or that we enjoyed on the VAX at the time. And, uh, but Windows NT came out, what was that, 91, I want to say, 90? And and also, uh, Visual Basic came out right around that same time, and uh, so that's where I really started into the Microsoft space, and uh, yeah, wrote some books and and did some a lot of work in a lot of different industries uh, in the in the VB era, and then got into .NET, of course, and that carries us up to today in a way. Um, I guess I've spent. She's uh, over, over 25 years, maybe 27 in consulting in different roles, either as a consultant or a manager or executive. Uh, and uh, where I work now is for uh, Zebia Xperit, uh, the, the Microsoft focused part of a company called Zebia. And uh, uh, I joined that company about a year ago. Um, and uh, it's been a lot of fun doing all sorts of cool cloud based you know, this isn't that. And, uh, but then also for the last 26 years, something like that, 27, um, I've been, uh, the kind of creator and primary maintainer of an open source project called CSLA. And, uh, and that's also been a lot of fun. Wow. I mean, with that many years of experience in the, in the area and, and .NET things like that, sounds like you probably have a lot of things to talk about. But I think we're probably going to focus mostly on CSLA today. Sound well, good? 
that that works for me. I, I always <laughs> like talking about CSLA. <laughs> okay, we'll start us off. Give us a, an overview of what CSLA is. Yes, like I said, CSLA is over twenty-seven years old, and uh, so it's undergone some you know major changes, you know, from back in the com days and into the .NET days. But uh, at its heart, it's a home for business logic. And what I mean by that is that we've got all of these frameworks from Microsoft or others uh, to create different kinds of user interface, user experience. And uh, you know, it's like today, you might pick uh, Blazor or ASP.NET Razor Pages or MAUI, or um, a lot of people still use Xamarin. Um, yeah, all these different uh, WPF you know, UI frameworks, right? And also over all these years, we've had a lot of different frameworks to talk to our, especially SQL databases. Um, and, and that's not always been a good thing, right? It's like uh, a lot of churn for very little gain as you go from DAO to RDO to, you know, ADO.net and all, you know, all this stuff. Um, but the point is that I've always believed that there are three key components to especially enterprise apps, right? There's this user experience part. And obviously, you have to talk to the, your uh, data store, your database. And there's always a lot of business logic. And there's no framework. Uh, well, there is, yeah, there is. There's CSLA. <laughs> but, uh, but that's what CSLA is trying to do, is provide this framework to create reusable, maintainable business logic um, and bring business logic up to the same level as UI frameworks or data access frameworks. So it's a framework on a framework. Well, yeah, it does. all these things sit on top of .NET, right? Right. Yeah. So, uh, you know, why would somebody want to use CSLA, you know, versus just going, you know, they're probably just you know, writing straight code to, to Razor Pages or Blazor or something like that today, and then writing a, mm -hmm. just their own little business layer, you know, then going out to data layer to talk to SQL. I think the key is that most people, uh, if we're blunt, don't build their own business layer. Um, they put all their business logic in a controller or in a view model uh, or in uh, click events behind a blazer button or click events behind. You know, I mean, this goes all the way back uh, to the early 90s with Visual Basic when there was, you know, this predates um, at least us having access to object-oriented technology. And we would just all put our business logic in lost focus events and click events. And uh, that, that pattern has continued to this day where, you know, basically if you're doing a razor page, the, the quote unquote click event uh, is your postback and people just write all their code there. Um, there's no separation of concerns. There's no isolation between the UI and the, the business logic. And that's why you have probably almost everybody or every organization is stuck uh, maintaining Windows Forms apps right now today, and they can never get off it because all their business logic is intertwined hopelessly with the UI logic. And that specifically is the problem that CSLA solves, is it pulls the logic out into its own layer. Yep, you're definitely you're definitely talking to me here because I, you know, have a legacy 
.NET Web Forms application that I deal with, and yeah, yep. being able to strip things out and you know componentize and get the different layers there is just not an easy task. So a lot of it just sits there, and it's like, well, it works. I'm not going to try to move it, otherwise I'll break it. Yeah, it, it, you, right. There's basically no hope, right? That's uh, um, complete rewrite, and and when you rewrite it, barring something to help you get the separation of concerns almost everybody when they do their rewrite ends up writing their code in a controller or a view model or just in click events behind the pages so rocky i'm i know nothing about csla other than i know the acronyms and i remember i've spoken to you about csla and heard you talk about it for i want to say almost 20 years um but i'm i'm interested in a a slice of what's inside and kind of almost I'm getting at a slice of a beautiful architecture, something that you really like inside that you can maybe give us an example of some in terms of uh, benefits for, you know, decoupling, pulling out the, uh, pulling the, the business logic out, and keeping it in, you know, that sort of thing. Right. Do you, is there something that comes to mind about the architecture that you'd like to talk about that is, that you that you find particularly valuable, or that your customers find really valuable. Yeah, there's probably two big things. Um, so I'm going to pick pick the one that uh, I think impacts the most people, and that is uh, although CSLA uh, has a rules engine and really uh, is designed around the creation of business rules, in order to streamline its use, um, it also uh, abstracts the differences between data binding across all the different UI frameworks that Microsoft has. And uh, at a simple level, a lot of folks aren't aware of the the deep, utterly maddening complexities that exist there. Um, and and but. You know, way back with Windows Forms and Web Forms, but especially Windows Forms, Microsoft defined some data binding interfaces uh, that were eh, not well documented, and Windows Forms used them extensively in in one way, and then WPF came along and used them in a different way. Uh, and you know, because they were not well documented, they're like, yeah, we we could do whatever we wanted, and. Uh, you know, and then uh, you, you know, web forms kind of used them a little bit. MVC kind of used them a little bit. Silverlight used them in a way that was similar to WPF, but not the same. Um, you know, now we get into Blazor. Blazor actually doesn't require any of those interfaces at all um, because of the way that it does data binding. Um, and so CSLA behind the scenes um is aware of which UI environment you're running in uh, on the client device and attempts as best as we've ever been able to figure out how to optimize for the different UI bindings um, in order to avoid UI refreshes um, in some cases, but then in other cases to make sure the refresh actually happens when you think it will. Uh, And so part of the, the, again, part of the goal is that if you write your business logic in this separate layer, that you should be able to basically tear off your existing UI 
and slap on a new UI with a different technology, uh, primarily using data binding um, and hopefully minimal UI code. Um, and this was not my purpose. This, this is not what I set out to do when I built CSLA, but I got to say this is the part of CSLA that has consumed by far the most time uh, and energy over the years is dealing with all the data binding idiosyncrasies. So from a business, you know, from your value as, as a consumer of CSLA, if you've got a Windows Forms app that's built on CSLA, for example, um, you should be able to just write a Blazor UI, as an example, um, on top of that same DLL. And um, CSLA is like, oh, great, now we're running in, in Blazor. Um, and it changes some of the way that uh, the data binding uh, interfaces and events are managed to be optimized for blazer uh, so so data so data binding with regards to ui uh for example in wpf there, there's this declarative uh syntax that's happening inside the uh the xaml mm -hmm. and i would imagine that i ha i have to step away from that and i put that somewhere else is that true I have data binding is in the code or, or no, no, no so, ideally you continue to bind the XAML binds to your, do, what are called a domain object. So CSLA is also an object oriented um, framework. So when you're creating this business, all your business rules are wrapped in what are called domain classes or domain objects. Right. Um, and those should be, designed using uh well kind of something akin to domain driven design they they should be designed to support the ui okay which is the same it's basically all designed around supporting a user scenario uh and that is you know that's basic object oriented design 101 right and so your your ui is designed with uh, storyboards your objects are designed to support the same user scenario um and your business rules then are are encapsulated in those classes. And so, yeah, within if, when you think about it from like a XAML perspective, you're binding this domain object directly to the UI using XAML binding. Um, that's the goal, right? Is to, is to be able to um, natively tap into uh, XAML binding, Blazor binding, whatever. Um, so the UI developer doesn't have to learn new things. Right. Um, and underneath it, the business rules and everything else are just automatically running and doing their job. So if I'm like Sean and I've got, you know, the situation that, that he described, which is a mess. I'm going to say. Sorry, That's Sean. my guess. That's my guess based on how Sean's talking about it. I inherited right. it. I'll, I'll say I inherited it. Yeah. Okay, that's good. That's good. But by the way, the messes I create are generally not inherited by any. <laughs> I didn't get those from anyone. I make my own messes; they're all over the place. <laughs> but if I have a, if I have a, this kind of you know event-driven kind of business logic, and I want to take a step in the direction of decoupling, is there a place does CLSA, CSLA help with that? And if it does, like, what, what's your advice if I do take a step in that direction? Or, and if it doesn't, is it, you know, I guess it, it sounds like the answer is I want to use it for a brand new project, maybe. 
And that's how I step into it. How would I step into it if I wanted to learn more? Would I take an existing one and try to port it a bit at a time? Or would I try a brand new project? What, what do you recommend? Which, what's your take it, on that? It's, yeah, that's a trick. No, no doubt that CSLA is not intended to be a modernization tool. And really, that's what you're asking for, I think, in that context is to say, hey, I've got this crufty legacy web forums thing. Um, and I want to modernize that app and I want to, I want an easy path to modernize. And that is a problem for way smarter people than me. <laughs> yeah, I do. Um, so, uh, on, on one hand I, I could answer and, and then some, you know, I think it's a valid answer to say that if you want to start using CSLA that you could pick, <clears throat> that you could pick a page uh, that you're trying to, you know, do some maintenance on or something, and you could rewrite that page to use CSLA. And, you know, theoretically, slowly over time, as you maintain pages, you, you might, over many, many years, slowly, you know, but, but you're still stuck on web forms, right? And, um, so realistically, you know, your goal is probably less to use CSLA and it's more to get off web forms um, into something modern like Razor Pages or Blazor. And yeah, CSLA is only going to help you there if you went through all the work to rewrite your existing app to have the separate business layer. And I can't see the business value. I'd, I'd have a hard time convincing somebody to do that. You know what I mean? Um, so yeah. I think you're better yeah. off rewriting it in something modern like Blazor and at the same time using something like CSLA to um, make it more maintainable into the future by creating that separation of concerns. So how does somebody get started with CSLA? What's the first thing is just install the NuGet package and then where do they go from there? Probably go to cslanet.com, uh, which has a link to the GitHub repo. And in the GitHub repo is a samples directory uh, where we maintain uh, samples showing the use of CSLA in all of the different UI frameworks. Um, and uh, and I have some, unfortunately, relatively outdated videos and books that are available. Uh, that that's, that's one of my ongoing goals is to keep updating all that content. Um, I've been recently doing a bunch of, this is a tangent, but a, a bunch of research, talking to people and reading other people's research and whatnot. And it, you know, I, I learn primarily by reading blogs or books and then taking stuff, but apparently I'm in the minority. Most people these days prefer to learn through video. So, um, that, that, uh, is, is a, you know. There you go. And so I, I'm, I'm probably going to be creating a bunch of video content. <laughs> I want to I want to drive down this tangent with you, Rocky, because I'm I'm often like I ask a question and, and Google throws up a bunch of videos for me to watch. And I'm like, no, I just want the answer in text because I can get it faster. Right. And and I know Google just wants to keep me on their site anyway. You know, they want to see, keep me on their property. They don't want me to leave and go somewhere else. Right. So it's like, come on, Google, just tell me the answer. 
right? I don't know. I, I think we live in the era of TikTok and, uh, um, you know, people have become accustomed to learning things in, in short, you know, maybe not TikTok short, you know, maybe YouTube short, uh, you know, video content. But I, I agree. I, I read very fast and I like to be able to look at the code and, and kind of page back, you know, I'll be reading and I'll page up and down and, and be comparing the, uh, what the author is saying to the code. And, and, uh, I don't know how to do that in a video context, but apparently I, all I'm saying, don't, don't shoot the messenger, Mark. I'm just, <laughs> my, my ADHD just does not work well with reading, reading things, whatever. That's why videos works best for me. I'm, um, visual learner, and so it a, a video t- seems to keep my attention focused better than a book. Mm-hmm. I, and I think from yeah, all everything I've been able to gather in the last two three months of of uh, you know, like I said, trying to figure out where to go, uh, I think you're on the side of the majority, Sean. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so back back to your question. I mean, where you know, how do people get started? Um, really the website, uh, there's some resources there, but, uh, a lot of it points into the GitHub repo. Um, and, uh, you know, there, there are links there to some books and videos that are, um, based primarily on CSLA four, um, which was a big inflection point. Um, that was, uh, that was the point that we introduced the, what we, what I think of as the modern rules engine. Uh, CSLA over the years has had uh, a couple different rules engines and uh, the current one is based on uh, a concept from uh, a guy named David West who wrote a book. He was a professor of computer science, uh, maybe still is, I don't know, uh, but he wrote a book called Object Thinking uh, back in the, I suppose, late 90s. I don't know, a long time ago. Fantastic book, though. Um to this day. And one of the concepts in there is this idea of, of having a rule, uh, be an object or a class and, uh, which is super powerful because when you, if, if a rule is a class, then a rule by itself can be unit tested. So you can establish to high confidence that this rule works. Um, and then in the context of CSLA, uh, you attach that rule to a property or, or well, one or more properties. Um, and then that's part of what CSLA does is it makes those rules run um, at the appropriate point based on the life cycle of the object and also when the property changes, that sort of thing. Um, and so, uh, you know, you still probably need to do some integration testing, but um, but just the fact that you've tested the rules, you know, um, gives you some high confidence that when you attach it to a property, that it's going to do the right thing. Is there is there anything that uh, assists with uh, uh, like testing, like test code generation? If I, I I feel like we're getting close to if we have the rule in a class, that there might be something there with regards to connecting it up to a test in terms of. Declaring what's expected, declaring how the rule is expected to behave, given particular inputs, or uh, uh, yeah, it's just something like that. Is there is there anything with testing or no? Uh, not not like you're describing. That sounds like a great idea, though. Uh, 
I'm oh, filled with yeah. I'm filled with ideas that are unimplemented, Rocky. <laughs> uh, over the years, um, yeah, I mean, CSLA has evolved along with I think kind of the Microsoft tech stack and and the expectations of the community, um, and, and my knowledge, and you know, but so you know, back at its origin, you know, unit testing was barely a thing in the mid '90s. Um, and uh that was not a high priority uh, the, you know the high priority was uh rapid application development and you know it, you know iterative uh back then it was the f5 you know debugging development and and uh you know but uh, it's directly analogous to what most web developers uh enjoy right where it's like oh yeah i just you know update my page you know save something and hit hit f5 in the browser and i get to test it you know that that uh, what what does Microsoft call it? The inner inner loop, right? The the developer inner loop. Um, but over the last probably fifteen years, I want to say we've slowly but surely uh, added a lot of uh, interfaces and uh, other features in CSLA um, that support cre- easier creation of unit tests, basically, and that. Uh, I don't know if it culminated. I doubt we're done <laughs> ever. Uh, but uh, CSLA 6, uh, and this was because of Blazor, fully embraced dependency injection. Uh, and you have to because Blazor, Blazor fully embraces dependency injection. And in order to play with Blazor, you, you have to also, um, which is all good, though. I mean, it was a lot of work, a heavy lift to create that support. Um, but the payoff is definitely there now for sure. Can you tell us like what you're thinking about for next or for future versions of CSLA? What kinds of places your mind goes to with regards to? uh... Well, I think probably the big one right at the moment, like just within the last five minutes is some sort of support for automated uh, unit test generation. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, where's my agent i need to talk to somebody right now uh, yeah right at the moment um i have been spending uh, a lot of time because blazer 8 uh changed a lot from blazer 7 um and in, in in opt-in ways. I mean, you can still use Blazor now the way you, you did a month ago. Um, but the new rendering models that are in Blazor, um, to fully exploit them, um, and, and, you know, no offense to the Blazor team at Microsoft because it's an awesome tool, but it feels kind of like this rendering thing is definitely a V1 feature. The this what, what they now call automatic rendering or different render modes. And, um, which means that there's some really big gaps. And so, uh, I guess this is more the present than the future, Mark, but this is, um, why I've been blogging and, and really focused a lot on trying to solve some key issues that have opened up with, uh, Blazor and .NET 8 that, uh, again, with with the goal of CSLA being to, um, you know, mitigate these changes so that a business developer doesn't have to think about them. Um, I, that's, that's so, um, 
you know, when I look into the future from there, um, yeah, I think then probably the next big thing is to uh, see what, if at all, CSLA can integrate with .NET Aspire. Um, some of that uh, tooling and capabilities on the server side that's, uh, you know, just announced. And, and of course, that's all based loosely on Project Tie and so forth. But there's some pretty cool stuff that I think I'm going to uh, want to support over the next year or two. So how does how does CSLA change the way I code or, or the code that I write? Well, I think the big thing is this concept of keeping your business logic separate from your UI logic and also separate from your data access logic. Um, you know, mo most people, I, I suspect these days, use Entity Framework. Um, and so they're using an ORM to talk to the database, and that's cool. Um, yeah, I, I personally don't mind Entity Framework, although I use Dapper quite a bit. Not not the DAPR, but the original DAPPER, uh, the lightweight ORM. Um, but it, it does force you to to um, go through a thought process where you say, um, you know, if if I'm not just going to write some if then clauses and whatnot behind a button click, um, you know, where where do I put that business logic? And the business logic goes in a rule, and the rule goes in your business library and gets connected to your, um, you know, business classes. And so, there's definitely a learning curve there, uh, because it it enforces some level of separation, which is the goal, uh, and enforces some level of structure um, in order to provide uh, consistency, right? And uh, you know, so in, in short, you know, we're, we're you might have uh, written in your controller or in a button click event, you might have written a page or two of code to like, you know, double check all the rules or, you know, the values the user entered and all that sort of stuff. And then if they're all good, then you call some service to save your data. Um, with CSLA, your button click event or your controller probably is one line of code that tells the business layer that it's time to save the object. And the object itself already knows, typically already knows whether it's valid or not. Um, and so if it's valid, then the it ends up calling essentially a service to save itself. Um, and uh, but the that question, are you valid or not, you know, had to be answered by the fact that you've got rules that are running. Um, as the user has been editing of the property values. So this sounds just like end-tier design. Well, it's fundamentally based on an end-tier design. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. I mean, the goal, uh, you know, taking all the fads out of everything, right? Whether, whether it's the Angular web fad or the, um, you know, microservice fad or, you know, whatever it is, taking all the fad out of this stuff, um, what I believe what most of us want to do is give the user a, a good, highly interactive, um, immediate, you know, a, a user experience that has a sense of immediacy. So as the user um, is filling out a complex invoicing or order entry form or whatever it is that's part of your, your business domain, that 
the users getting this immediate feedback. Uh, calculations happen right as they tab off because maybe they're a CSR, they're on the phone with the customer. So like literally as they're typing, you know, things are being updated and, and they're having this highly interactive experience, right? And to do that generally means that we're running code on the client, right? I mean, the old web, similar to the old mainframe, um, you'd fill out the form and hit the transmit key. Um, the, the server would check all the stuff out and then give you a laundry list of what was wrong. Well, none of us like that experience, right? Um, so we transitioned in the web to writing smart client apps using JavaScript or TypeScript or Dart or, you know, whatever, um, because we wanted to give the user this great experience. And so CSLA does that by um, you have this, all your business logic is in this DLL, well, one or more DLLs. Um, and ideally, if your .NET or if your client machine is able to run .NET, so that means you know uh, using Maui or Blazor, um, every machine can run .NET um, on the client device, all the way from your phone up or your watch up to your uh, you know PC or whatever. So you, this becomes realistic, um, and then at the same time, we never ever trust the client device, right? Because if if a bad actor has physical access to your device, nothing is safe. I mean, ever, ever. And um, so that means that that business logic also needs to run on the server. And so again, with CSLA, because this is just a .NET DLL, um, you deploy the same .NET DLL to the server. And part of what CSLA does is it makes sure that when the um, request from the client which is probably all correct unless it's a bad actor involved, right? Um, hits the server, it reruns all the rules just to double check. And then if all the rules are still valid, then we save the data or whatever uh, into the database. And so, yeah, it's, it is a variation on an end tier model for sure. Um, but I'm, I, personally, I get less hung up on am I ooh, microservice-y or am I end tier? Um, and I get much more concerned about, am I, uh, creating some piece of software that meets my client requirements, uh, you know, my, my end user requirements, business requirements, um, is it maintainable at an achievable cost over probably a 10 or 20 year time frame? Cause that's how long enterprise apps last, um, you know, and, and does it require excessive learning of new skills, uh, for my developer team? And, and ideally, the answer there is no, right? <laughs> yeah. Okay, got it. Yeah. So don't use mer microservices because that's a fad. All right, got it. Got it. That's what I said. <laughs> I, I I do a lot of talks on on how and when to use microservices, and uh, maybe come back at another point and do an interview on that because um, they, they're a great tool. Um, you know, just like a hammer or a screwdriver is a great tool, but if you're, uh, trying, trying, if you, if your problem needs a hammer and you're using a screwdriver to solve it, that's not going to be great. And, uh, here, the problem with the microservice fad is, um, you know, we, we all got this hammer and by God, everything looks like a nail. Um, <laughs> that's that, you know, so yeah, it's a fantastic tool when used in the right circumstance, but not all circumstances are the right circumstance. So 
Yeah, it'd be great to have you back on and to talk about that sometime. So is there anything that we haven't talked about about CSLA that our listeners should know? Well, I think the, the only thing I didn't talk about uh, is why I created it in the first place, um, which is a little geekier. Um, and, and it's a feature that is useful. Um, you know, Mark asked this question, what's, what's the feature everybody gets the most value out of, right? Um, and, and it's definitely the combination of business rules and data binding. But I originally wrote this thing um, back in the comm days, uh, and you know, which it technically uh, didn't look anything like it does today, you know, from tech in terms of the implementation, but the concepts um, at the time. And I wrote it because I was working with a, um, a bunch of folks that were using um, a C++ derivative. This, this was in the very early days of client server and end tier um, back when almost nobody could do it successfully because um, you know, the technology was too raw. And they were writing this system um, using what at the time was a tool called Forte that had this idea that um, you could uh, hydrate an object graph, so like a, a sales order with all its line items, um, on, let's say, on the server and do some work with it, load it with data and whatnot. And then it was what's called a mobile object. And so the object graph would literally move to another physical computer, usually the client workstation where the user was sitting and um, and they could interact with that object graph. And then when they were done doing whatever they were gonna do, then the object graph would often move back to a server to talk to the database again. And the idea being that these object graphs would move to the resources that they needed. So you could think of the database like a resource and the end user like a resource. Um, and and it, this caught my imagination, not in small part because the uh, application that these friends of mine were working on uh, was global. And so they had object graphs that were literally bouncing off satellites. And I'm like, I want my software to bounce off satellites too. This sounds cool. Um, and so back in the 90s, this was done with remote OLA automation that later became COM+. Uh, and in the .NET world, it started out with remoting and has gone through uh, you know, WCF and a whole host of different transport technologies. But the point being, at its core, what CSLA does is it supports this concept of mobile objects. Um, and from a business perspective, what it means is that, um, you can start building your app in a, in a essentially one or two tier model where maybe everything runs on the same physical device, including the database, um, or a two tier you know, model, which isn't so common anymore. Um, but you can switch to a three tier model without changing any of your code. Um, you just change the configuration so that the uh, the objects that used to just stay on one computer now all of a sudden are moving between computers. And uh, this helps address a problem that I've always called the the uh, kind of the pit of success or or uh, basically in much of my career, especially my early career, I was asked to write apps that you know people were like, man, we need this app. We need it now. Um, 
you know, it only has like five screens and, you know, it's temporary. We're only going to use it for like six months because the new system is rolling out or whatever. And so you write this app and people like it. And, you know, but you didn't really put a lot of thought into it, right? Architecturally, you just wrote the code in a slapdash and maybe built it as a two-tier thing. And um, then like a year or two later, you get these panic calls because that your app is not working in Tokyo. And, and you're like, what do you mean it's not working? Number one, that app was supposed to die after six months. And here we are two years later. Number two, what do you mean it doesn't work in Tokyo? It was a you know, app I wrote for some people in Minnesota. And they're like, oh, no, no, it worked so good that we never did roll out the replacement system. And now we're rolling it out globally. Uh, you know, and, and yeah, I know you only wrote it for like three concurrent users, but, but man, we've got 500 concurrent users now. And it is starting to get a little slow. Nice. And this has happened to me over and over and over. And, and I think it happens to a lot of people. It does. And, yeah. and so then what do you do? Well, if you did what I just described, then you go back and you say, oh, you know, that app that I wrote for you in, in like three or four weeks. Now, because you've got these big enterprise requirements, distributed, global, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, it's going to take two years to rewrite with a team of 20 people. Right. I mean, that's often what happens. I might be exaggerating, but, and the users are like, what's wrong with you people? Um, but if you had written it originally with, with CSLA, um, from the get go, then what you would do is tell them that it's going to be super hard. Tell them it's going to take a couple, three months, nice. tell them that you need a raise. Um, <laughs> And then really what you do is you stand up an application server, change some configuration files, and it's all done. So, you know, I'm not, not that I'm encouraging like business, what would that be, fraud or something? But, um, <laughs> I think it might be. Let's be, let's be careful. <laughs> let's be careful. Well, you know, for those old enough to remember Star Trek, the original series and Mr. Scott, um, you know, Scotty always did this though, right? He's, I need more time. He's like, I need more time. I need more time. And yet he would always do it, uh, you know, um, and he was considered a miracle worker. So my point is actually not to uh, exploit this as much as you can be perceived as a miracle worker, right? You can be like, oh my God, this is going to be really, really hard. And then you do it and everybody's like, oh, you must be a genius. Here's a promotion. You know, that, that's that's the goal. <laughs> <laughs> I've spent my whole life waiting for somebody to say you must be a genius. I'm working so hard, Rocky. I'm going to get CSLA right now. There you go. That's going to be my path. <laughs> Next week, Sean, you'll be saying I'm a genius. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess on that note, we should move on to picks. <laughs> All right. Uh, Mark, do you want to start us off with picks? Okay, uh, on Netflix, there's a show called Bodyguard, uh, and I know a little bit about it. Uh, it's got, uh, apparently it was like number one show in the UK, and uh, so I started watching this show. I've only seen about half, halfway through the first episode, but it was tense and compelling. In fact, sufficiently tense and compelling that uh, I realized we couldn't watch it anymore before going to bed because we need to have like a, you know, something lighter. My wife and I is a chaser, right? But we were like, we we're grabbing onto each other like this, watching the first, uh, 
the first, uh, whatever, 30 minutes of it. So anyway, I, I recommend it. If you're into uh, thrillers, you want to take a look at it. So far, so good. Bodyguard. All right. So uh, my uh, pick this week is based upon a recent thing that happened in our area. A couple of weeks ago, a farmer was digging a trench in his field and hit a gas line. And oh. that gas line fed into three towns in this area. So there were about almost 40,000 homes without gas. And it was about five days that we didn't have gas because the repair took, you know, just a day or so. But when that happens, they then have to go around to everybody's house and turn off all of their gas lines because they have to bleed all the air out of the lines before they can have that gas coming back into the houses. So that total process for 40,000 homes took about five days. Wow. So we had no hot water, no heat or anything like that from gas during that time. So Sean's, uh, Sean's pick is go without essentials <laughs> for five days. No. Mine wins, Sean. Mine wins. Bodyguard is better than yours. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, my pick is space heaters made by Vornado. So okay. Vornado okay. makes some nice space heaters. They're affordable. They're quiet. I like I like that they actually maintain the temperature pretty well. A lot of the cheap space heaters, you know, they have a big like like five to ten degree fluctuation before they kick back on to heat back up and things like that. So the tornado is really nice that they actually, you know, only fluctuate a couple degrees before it says, okay, kick back on and maintain the temperature. So they they've worked very well for me in those five days. That sounds harsh. That, that- I, I've been in cases where we've lost power for like a week and, and uh, that, that's just a miserable deal. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if losing, losing power might be a little bit more easy to deal with. You know, you're just dealing with lanterns and flashlights and blankets mm-hmm. and things like that. Uh, this gas outage was just because it also, all the local businesses and restaurants had it shut down too because they couldn't cook. So it was a, a huge impact. All right, Rocky, do you have something to uh, use a, as a pick for our listeners? Yeah, I'm kind of torn. Um, I, I think I'm going to go with a TV show, and it's not a new one. Um, it's It was on Netflix, and it's called Longmire. And uh, I'm going to go with it, though, because when I watched it, I was like, wow, that that we really reminded me of my father. Um, yeah, not, not exactly, but pretty close. Longmire is a lawman, uh, in Wyoming, uh, pretty much in the modern day, but he, he's really out of time. Um, yeah, he, he should have been there like a hundred or 120 years ago. (laughs) And, uh, uh, just the, the way that he, uh, uh, did things and worked and thought about things and stuff. It, it's a great show for one thing, a really enjoyable, um, if, if kind of brutal at times. Um, but, uh, but I liked it a lot because, uh, my, my father is a lot like that where he's, a it's kind of a man out of time. I was, uh, li- living in the modern world, but kind of, I think, uh, identified more with people from 
you know, a hundred years ago. <laughs> okay, great. Um, so yeah, we'll be, make sure to put links to, you know, CSLA.net in the show notes and also your website, lotcut.net. Yep. So everybody can get to that. And yeah, if our listeners have questions, want to reach out to the show, they can get me on all of the platforms. I am at .NET Superhero. So thanks, Rocky, for coming on the show. It was a great conversation. Nice to get you and Mark back together. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. Thank you much. <laughs> great. Thanks, Rocky. And we'll thank you, and we'll catch everybody else in the next episode of Adventures in .NET. <laughs>